You're listening to Poor Man's History. That's right. This is our podcast that we do in tandem with Cool and Unusual Punishment. But this is our side project mm-hmm. where, you know, can get a little looser. Yeah. We, we've been doing Luganville and I kept telling you, Jody, where do I put all the laughs? You said, put them in a laugh bucket and we'll figure something out. Now, we usually start these episodes with a reading from Emily Post's Etiquette, but I'd like to do something new tonight, if you'll allow me. I have a book in front of me called No One May Ever Have the Same Knowledge Again. <laughs> this is a book you can get off the Mount Wilson Observatory website, which is located in California. Now, the content of this book is a series of letters. When the observatory was built around 1905, it was, at the time, the largest actively used telescope in existence, and the pictures they were taking were, you know, pictures nobody had seen before. And so when they started releasing these pictures to the public, it was pretty incredible. Some of the things, you know, people were seeing for the first time. According to the preface of this book, as early as 1911, the they astronomers were butts in space. Space butts. <laughs> the astronomers at Mount Wilson began receiving letters from people all over the world, all walks of life, educated as well as uneducated. There were many letters were a simple expression of appreciation and awe for the work the astronomers were doing. There was, however, another class of letter. These letters were communications to the astronomers by individuals who felt often with a great degree of earnestness, that they were in possession of understandings or information that should be shared with the astronomers. Now, why did they think that they needed to do that? Um, I think probably a lot of people who had theories as to oh, great great metaphysical philosoph- so it was- <laughs> philosophical <laughs> theories that um, okay. now that there were scientists who were reaching out in, you know, into the galaxy, they felt compelled to share what they knew. Okay, I, I can I can put this together because they probably must have thought I'm sending a letter and I am very special. Yes. But a bunch of people thought they were very special. Correct. Okay, this and, is um, great. <laughs> I don't know how long we'll we'll do this for, but you will see there's a a pretty big spectrum of tone to some of these letters. So I'll start with the first letter in this book from which the title is derived. Letter from Mrs. Alice May Williams to Dr. Edison Petit and Dr. Seth B. Nicholson. Uh, Dear gentlemen, some weeks ago I wrote you a letter. Not yet having heard from you, I was wondering if you received my letter. I wrote you from Hamai. Since I have shifted from Hamai to Auckland, so I thought I would send you my new address. I want to tell you I'm not after money and I am not a fraud. I believe I have some knowledge which you gentlemen should have. If I die, my knowledge may die with me, and no one may ever have the same knowledge again. Because if people hear talking, they want to stick. They go and do away with themselves. I have gone through frightful things. Still, I go through it, and I'm beginning to get knowledge. (laughs) I would write down and tell you what I know, but I would sooner wait till I hear from you, because you are both strangers to me, and my letter may go astray." When one writes, one needs peace and quietness. I have got half a house with another woman some years older. She will not let me sit quiet a moment. It is terrible. She keeps wanting to know. (laughs) There's a lot of typos and misspellings, but I'll... I'll, Please, dear God, get me out of this house. (laughs) She keeps wanting to know the ins and outs of everything. 
She keeps running up and down the stairs, in and out of doors, slamming them about, and keeps wanting to talk, and keeps wanting me to get ready to go out. It is awful. I don't know whether I am standing on my head or my feet, and still I'm going through that treatment I told you. I do want to tell you something, because the entrance into the other world is worked different to what you ever thought, and you will get a shock. When I tell you I don't want money from you, it won't do you no harm to have my knowledge. Now I will conclude hoping you gentlemen are living and in the very best of health, and I hear that people are dying in America with the very hot weather they are having. I remain, yours sincerely, Alice Williams, P.S. Please excuse writing and mistakes, as this lady is worrying me to get ready to go out. Please keep my letter secret till I tell you what I know. Then you can do what you like, A.W. It's a pretty good introduction to this book, because the letters I will read in the future get incredibly in-depth with theories over planets and gods and philosophy. They, they go in a lot of directions, but that is a that is a primer for what you're going to hear. That is pre-Seinfeld. That is a whole letter about nothing. Like yeah. She doesn't tell you anything Mm -hmm. really but it is written that first one with the confidence of like it is very self-important it's like i'm going to write you a whole letter and just tease you yeah i want to make sure i hear back from you before i reveal my knowledge i imagine her husband must have died because she's mrs but she's living in half a house with another older woman it's a real uh laverne and shirley situation (laughs) it sounds like a great time also, I'm sure this woman's a delight to live with. <laughs> Do you want me to go first? Sure. I've got an interesting tale. It's not a murder, mm-hmm. and it's definitely local. It happens in Chippewa Falls. It's featured on season two, episode one of I Survived, a lifetime show, which uh, details people's very harrowing accounts with near death no i survived is different than i should be dead another tv show in the same genre it is not which i assume has a a greater deal of um assumption that god was out to get uh, to get you and you prevailed (laughs) well i should be dead this feels like an i should be dead from (laughs) february 27th of 2005 okay this involves the Metza brothers. Okay, so Jim and Dave Metza are brothers. And a bunch of snow falls. They're intrigued by the newly fallen snow. And... They're, they're babies. <laughs> they're baby boy brothers. Right. <laughs> And they know, being baby boy brothers, that quality snowmobiling has been at a premium this winter. And I'm pulling this from a Chippewa Herald article, as well as the Wikipedia for I Survived. So you'll see the links, but just know that I'm reading... As you know, in Wisconsin, you're never sure when the good snowmobiling snow is going to fall, so... Which is true. Yeah, yeah. And if you've ever been around a set of brothers who are itching to get out there on the beals... (laughs) <laughs> they jump on their sleds. <laughs> and head for the snow. 
Which is the one that has street cred, the brand? Which one is the one I'm supposed to make fun of? Of the brothers? <laughs> of Snowmobile. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I... Jim, now Jim should be dead. <laughs> well, he will It's feel... arguable he ever deserved to be alive, frankly. I would say, being as how I grew up in a Polaris-heavy household, mm-hmm. I would probably say Arctic Cat is... Okay. Who is to blame for all of this? I mean, I don't, don't know for sure. They were. I don't know Arctic anything Cat. about snowmobiles, but I want your dad to like me, so I'll <laughs> I'll stick with Polaris. Just say you like Polaris. It had snowed about four to six inches, and the trail riding was spectacular. Jim said, but that blanket of snow would soon create a life-threatening situation. North of Cornell, Jim thought he broke through the ice as he was coming across the river. But the brothers weren't concerned. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I guess you just think the snowmobile is so fast. If Jesus could walk on water, certainly these skis can propel us over some open yeah, water. You're already on the other side of the river when you stop to think, did I break through the ice? Yeah. Yeah. I should be dead. Dave turned and shot towards the west side of the river. Halfway across the 300 yard wide river, his sled disappeared. The river exploded under his track for 50 yards around him. I looked at him for a second, not believing what I had witnessed, Jim said. I went down in the water and looked back to see my snowmobile sinking below the water, Dave said. I looked around and didn't think my brother had gone in, but I knew I did. With Dave in the middle of the water, Jim laid down on the edge of the ice and screamed for Dave to swim to him. But Dave doesn't respond to his calls because his snowmobile helmet was strapped on super tightly to his head and it was filled with water. And he was trying everything to keep his head above the water. I laid back in the water trying to use my helmet as a flotation device, but every time I tried to do that, I'd go on under and then I'd be choking too much, said Dave. Jim knew there was a house about a mile and a half down the river and decided to seek help. He got about a quarter of a mile down the river and was about 100 yards from shore when the ice exploded under him, forcing him into the water and fighting for his life. I don't remember the cold as I was trying to bust the ice to get back to shore, but I knew the cold was getting to me, Jim said. His arms were like lead weights and it was everything he could do to keep his head above water. His large winter boots, snowsuit, helmet, and gloves were fighting against him. As I was breaking the thin ice to get to shore, I looked back, and I saw I had only traveled about 10 yards. It felt more like 100. I quickly realized that this was futile, and I had to get up on the ice, Jim said, as he got out of the water. (sighs) In the distance, Jim could hear Dave smashing at the ice in vain, attempting to break his way to shore. I felt the pain in my own body, and I knew his had to be worse, Jim said. He had been in the icy river for close to 45 minutes fighting for his life. Isn't this... Yeah, I'm waiting for for a, a an exit ramp where I can like make a joke or something, because this is just horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Imagine how scared you have to be to like think there's a, a house a, a mile and a half down the road, and that's maybe my best bet. I'd better run a mile and a half down in snowshoes to this house 
Well, probably regular because they were snowmobiling. I mean, yeah, snow um, boots, you know. Snow spikes. Yeah, (laughs) snow spikes. Okay. (laughs) Dave kept trying to stay above the water, but it was growing harder by the minute. I tried to stay afloat, but would keep sinking below the ice, Dave said. That's when anger took over in Dave's fight for survival. I kept telling myself I couldn't die out here, Dave said. I got really mad, and I think that's what helped helped keep me alive. I wonder what it must feel like to be in a situation where you feel like you can definitely see an end game that is you dying and being like not part of wanting that to happen. Feeling like, fuck, I don't want this to happen. This sucks so bad. I started screaming as loud as I could. I thought if there was a chance I was going to live, screaming screaming would be the only one, he said. But reality was also setting in. He knew he had been in the water for a long time. I was thinking about my wife and kids and whether they would be provided for good enough. I thought about some of the things I've said to people that maybe I shouldn't have and other things I should have said. Dave said, you go through a weird state of mind. It's a bizarre place to go. (laughs) Things like, you think it's a good idea to cross that river? (laughs) (laughs) While Dave was convinced his chances of survival were dwindling, Jim wasn't giving up hope. Jim looked back and saw Dave was not moving and had stopped bringing his arms out of the water. I started to cry and began running up the river towards him. When I reached the hole in the ice, I yelled again for help and to Dave to try to swim to me, but there was no response, he said. I looked at Dave struggling in the water and said, well, trying not to cry, I love you. And I laid down on the ice with my arms in the water, looking at him struggle to stay afloat 150 yards from me. Oh, Jim was intent on saving his brother from the icy water and ran for help at the home of Sonny, who was going to bring a small boat out on the ice with an ATV. Jim ran back out on the ice towards his brother. When Jim got within 10 feet of his brother's helmet, the ice gave way in front of him. To his surprise, he was still on the ice. He looked out to the helmet and saw it move. His brother was still alive. I screamed again and again for him to swim towards me. He could not swim, but he was floating, he said. I reached out and the river's current brought his body to me. I grabbed his helmet by the visor and pulled as hard as I could. He muttered a few words that sounded like, Jimmy, I can't breathe. This was featured on a show called I Survived, right? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Jesus Christ. I mean, this is exactly the kind of these stories are really intense. I'm really sorry about this because it's... A few minutes later, rescuers arrived and helped Dave get to shore. Inside the ambulance, Dave's initial body temperature was 83 degrees, he said. They told me your heart stops at 82 degrees and you go into cardiac arrest, Dave said. He had only about 30 seconds or a minute left to live out there. I thought I was through, Dave said. My brother, he did an amazing thing. This happened in 2005. There was a follow-up story in the Chippewa Herald when it happened, like in 2008. And they went back to the the brothers. And um, I can share that post as well. Like he's had a, a child since then. He still has a lot of extremity circulation issues, but is doing miraculously well one of the brothers did buy an arctic cat um while his brother bought a skidoo 
Um, so that's, uh, you'd have to go to the respective forums to find out who's bl- blaming this, <laughs> this yeah. whole catastrophe on, <laughs> on what sled. Yeah. I kind of hadn't paid. I mean, the story when the EMTs arrived, they couldn't even move Dave. His wa- clothing was so waterlogged and he has yeah nerve damage in his arms and legs. He can't handle the cold at all, but he has a daughter and, um, you know, obviously a very strong bond with his brother now. So when I read the story and then I was like, I survived as there's been things on there that have really terrified me. And then there's stories like this that are terrifying, but not in like a, a murderer way, but almost worse. Yeah. This taps <sighs> into that final destination. Um, yeah. Everything could kill you sort of. I think the show is called I Shouldn't Be Alive, by the way. I don't think the show is called I Should Be Dead. <laughs> Come to think of it. I mean, I should be dead. It's hilarious. <laughs> but anyway, um, I read that and just had a very uh, terrified response to it. And It's weird because I, not that I find myself going out on frozen rivers and lakes all that often in the winter, but I would use snowmobile tracks as a metric to like oh the ice must be thick enough the snowmobilers are out i think you do get a certain confidence when you're a snowmobiler that you are aware of when it feels problematic and you can judge temperature and snow cover but you know in the same breath every year there is somebody or some buddies who fall through the Mm -hmm. ice here you will see fishing shacks out like in fucking April here. Can I tell you another story about Man Against Nature? Does it involve a bear? It's a weirdly specific question. Maybe I'll just start from the top here. That seems like a good place. In April 2017, a man started hiking in a state park just north of New York City. You know, maybe he wanted to get away, but he left on this hiking trip with no phone, no credit card, no ID, no name. Did people know he was doing it? Um, you will come to find the answer is no. But he went out hiking. This guy's an asshole. He can't do this. Anyway. He did bring a giant backpack, which his fellow hikers considered far too heavy for his journey. (laughs) <laughs> and he brought a notebook in which he would scribble notes about Screeps, S-C-R-E-E-P-S, an online programming game. <laughs> the Appalachian Trail runs through the area and he started walking south, moving slowly but steadily down through Pennsylvania and Maryland. He told people he met along the way that he had worked in the tech industry and wanted to detox from digital life. I don't know, this guy already. Why do you need to be telling people like... I think you'll come to like this guy. Was he married? Uh, hold off on that question. Okay. Goes on to discuss how hikers will sometimes ac- acquire these trail names, which for this guy it was denim at first because he started his trek in jeans. <laughs> later, later it became mostly harmless, which is how he described himself one night at a campfire, which is also the entry for Earth in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mostly harmless. Um, yeah. By summer, the hiker was in Virginia. He walked about 100 miles with 66-year-old woman who went by the trail name Obsidian. She taught him how to make fire, and he told her he was eager to see a bear. 
On December 1st, Mostly Harmless had made it to northern Georgia, where he stopped in a store called Mountain Crossings. A veteran hiker named Matt Mason was working that day, and the two men started talking. Mostly Harmless said that he wanted to figure out a path down to the Florida Keys. Mason told him about a route and a map that he could download to his phone. Quote, I don't have a phone, Mostly Harmless replied. Describing the moment, Mason remembers thinking, Oh, this guy's awesome. Everyone who goes into the woods is trying to get away from something, but few people have the commitment to cut their digital lifelines as they put on their boots. Yeah, also, like, cut their lifeline for help. You're not wrong. Uh, and I, mean, I don't. that's why some people still bring a phone to at least call if they're going to die. I don't know. This guy seems to be a, a, a programmer from, from a tech background. <sighs> Needed to be taught how to make fire. But is also um, unassuming and not complaining. Like he's just slowly hiking from New York down to now Georgia. Yes, he doesn't bring his phone and leaves with intention of hiking a long time, but decides it's not important before he leaves to learn how to make fire. Well, in any case, Mason, the guy working at the shop, <laughs> prints 60 pages of a map and he s- sells it to Mostly Harmless for $5 cash. <laughs> which the hiker pulled from a wad of bills that Mason remembers as being an inch thick. Mason loves hikers who are a little bit different, a little bit strange. He asked Mostly Harmless if he could take a picture. Mostly Harmless hesitated, but then agreed. He left the shop and went on his way. Two weeks later, Mason heard from a friend in Alabama who had seen Mostly Harmless hiking through a snowstorm. Quote, He was out there with a smile on his face, walking south, Mason recalls. Now I have the photo he took. This guy does not look how I thought he would look, but also his beard had grown out. He doesn't look crazy. That's how most people spoke of him. Seems like a smart, quiet... I mean, if he's happily hiking through a snowstorm... Yeah, that's that seems to be everyone's read on him. He's not crazy. By the last week of January, he was in northern Florida, walking on the side of Highway 90 when a woman named Kelly Fairbanks pulled over to say hello. Fairbanks is what is known as a travel angel, someone who helps out hikers who pass near her, giving them food and access to a shower if they want. She was out looking for a different hiker when she saw this guy. She pulls over and they start to talk. He says that he started in New York and he's heading down to Key West. Uh, She asked if he was using the Florida Trail app and he responded that he didn't have a phone. Fairbanks takes notice of his gear, which is a mix of high-end and generic, including his black and copper trekking poles, and she was struck by his rugged, lonely look. Quote, He had very kind eyes. I saw the huge beard first and thought, it's an older guy. But his eyes were so young, and he didn't have crow's feet, I realized he was a lot younger. So then she thought, hello. (laughs) She was worried, though, because the trail can be confusing, It wouldn't be long before everything started getting hot and muggy. Quote, (laughs) I remembered him because I was worried. So it seems like a very nice, sexy young guy uh, who doesn't seem crazy, but maybe does seem ill-equipped. Yeah. But at at this point, he has gone the majority of the trail. How many miles had he walked by then? (laughs) Most of them. (laughs) (laughs) That's a funny answer. Six months later. And 600 miles south on June 23rd, 2018, two hikers headed out into the Big Cypress National Preserve. 
The humidity was oppressive, but they trudged forward, crossing swamps, tending aching feet, and dodging alligators. Which I assume is baseline for here in Florida. Yeah. <clears throat> About 10 miles into their journey, they stopped to rest at a place called Noble's Camp. There, they saw a yellow tent and a pair of boots outside. And they smelled something bad. Got a little concerned. They called out and eventually went over and peered through the tent's windscreen, which is where they found it. An emaciated, lifeless body lying in the tent. What? They come and collect the body. They find that he has $3,500 in cash on him. He has plenty of food nearby, but is malnourished. He weighs 83 pounds when they find him. The investigators put his age in the vague range between 35 and 50, and they can't point to any abnormalities. The only substances he tested positive for were ibuprofen and antihistamine. His cause of death, according to the autopsy report, was undetermined. He had, in some sense, just wasted away. That guy was definitely a lot bigger than 83 pounds. That is a hearty... A healthy-looking guy, certainly. Uh, The place where he died was five miles from a major highway. He left no note. There was no evidence that he had spent his last days calling out for help. So the investigators are stumped. They don't know who this guy is. Doesn't have an ID... He doesn't... Six uh, months after the angel lady saw him is when this happens? Yes. Okay. So the Florida Florida law enforcement are trying to figure out who this guy is, and they draw up a, a sketch of this guy, and the Collier County investigators share it with the public, uh, along with some information. I have the, like, the APB they put out. G- given we know he died, like, I shouldn't laugh about it, but the composite they come up with is on the top here along with photos and it is a a strangely emotion filled face they decided to sketch him Uh, he looks like surprised but not upset like like a clown just came out at him wow wow (laughs) that's that's sort of the look they gave this composite so they circulate this uh online along with other pictures from his campsite including his tent and hiking poles which i did find but didn't include so what you find out is that this snowballs into a huge online campaign and he's not a ghost like there are lots of pictures of people took with him on the trail there's actually a couple minutes of gopro footage of hikers that that met him and he's there's nothing strange about it he's just a dude on the trail he wasn't surreptitiously moving down the trail. He was just hanging out and well-documented, um, but nobody got his name. Nobody knows a lot about him. Uh, they put out this this APB, and Kelly Fairbanks, the lady in northern Florida, she comes across this, and she recognized the eyes and the beard. Quote, I started freaking out. It was the kind of man, it was the man she'd seen on Highway 90. The sheriff Sheriff's office had also posted a photo of the hiker poles and Fairbanks knew she had an image of the same man holding the same gear. She clicked over to the Collier County Sheriff's Facebook page and sent in two photographs she had taken of mostly harmless. I think I have those too. She got a message back immediately asking for a phone number. Soon a detective was on the line asking, quote, what can you tell me? 
She told him everything she knew, and she shared the original post and her photo all over Facebook. Soon, there were dozens of people jumping in. They had seen the hiker, too. They journeyed with him for a few days or a few hours. They'd sat at campfires with him. There's the GoPro video, which I watched. People remembered him talking about a sister in either Sarasota or Saratoga. They thought he had said he was from near Baton Rouge. One person remembered that he ate a lot of sticky buns. Another said that he loved ketchup, but no one knew his name. So a Facebook group starts around this time and starts to pick up steam with the goal of figuring out his identity. Reddit threads pop up to analyze notes that he had taken for Screeps, this programming game he was into. Amateur detectives track down leads and tried to match photographs in missing persons. I wonder why he was documenting this stuff with this game if he wasn't connected to anything. What would he be writing down? Do you know anything about this game? No, and that would be worth looking because if he didn't have a phone... If yeah. he was truly disconnected from like the digital life, then he would be making analog notes in a notebook about programming. It's a little curious, but... A massive timeline was constructed on WebSleuth, which they had a link, which we'll put up. People wondered if he was a boy featured on Dr. Oz, who went missing in 1982. That was a theory. Was it possible that Mostly Harmless was a suspect in Arkansas who had murdered his girlfriend in 2017? None of the photos seemed to match. As Fairbanks said, quote, he was a good looking dude, which she notes might explain why so many of the searchers are women. In mid-October, <gasps> one woman in the Facebook group posted a slideshow comparing his photos to those of Brad Pitt. Quote, actually, I think MH looks better. Wink emoji. This is talk about somebody who's dead. Yes. <laughs> and there, it's, like, it's just funny because these ladies aren't going to get a shot with him. Well, they're not going to get a shot with Brad Pitt either, so what's the difference? Uh, so despite interacting, having these intersections with all these people, he doesn't seem to have left any actual clues that anybody can track down. And no missing person. There's been no missing persons report filed. Correct. Maybe also because he told everybody, I'm going to be gone for so long. Natasha Teasley, who manages a canoe and kayak company in North Carolina, came across a story after the like COVID after the pandemic hit and her business slowed down spending more time online. She came across the story and started to uh, become a little obsessive about it. She ended up sending flyers to chambers of commerce in every city where people thought he might've come from Sarasota, Florida, Saratoga Springs, New York. She tracked down details about every car that was towed out of Herman state park where he likely started his journey. She scoured missing persons databases when somebody asked what was her motivation for doing all this, she said, quote, he's got to be missed. Somebody must miss this guy. So in the summer of 2020, the organizers of this Facebook group, they send everything they've collected to a Houston company called Othram. It had been started two years earlier and pitches itself as a one-stop shop for solving cold cases wow okay everybody othram pretty confident got a relative to... who's dead for 30 years hey stop here i'm othram <laughs> yeah your one-stop shop for solving your relative's murder <laughs> the only reason why this cold case is just because you don't know about us <laughs> uh so, so the founder of othram is a guy named david middleman He's a geneticist who worked on the original Human Genome Project 
Uh, quote, I like doing cases from the tip line. Lab work for the sake of lab work is kind of boring. So they go to this company, Othram, and Othram calls up the Collier County Sheriff's Office and offers to help. He wants to do a DNA analysis. Maybe do like the 23andMe companies and stuff uh, like that? That's where this is headed. So they need $5,000 to do this analysis, which this group raises. Hey! For the low price of 5K. <laughs> <laughs> uh, within eight days, the Facebook group raises the money, runs the analysis, or to run the analysis. They, I, I don't know how they came across the small piece of bone that they use. It's not answered in this article, so I won't get into it. Somebody had a small piece of bone. Somebody in the group. He's like Brad Pitt. You don't turn down a small piece of bone. That's weird. Um, and it goes on <laughs> to kind of describe what the the procedure is. And it's what you expect. Like they don't, he's not in any databases anywhere, but they are trying to fill out a genetic family tree. Where was the body this whole time they're trying to figure out who he was? Did they keep it? I don't know. I'm assuming so. Uh-huh. I could see myself getting very obsessed with the story like this, and I cannot wait to hear. It might be the best time to dive in because this DNA testing just started in the summer of this year. Somebody is quoted in this article as saying the earliest they might get results is in December, but we are in the middle of it right now, and I don't have an end to this story because they are currently doing the testing. <sighs> okay. Did he end up in Key West where he kept telling people he wanted to be? Let me Google Noble's Camp. Noble's Camp is towards the, yeah, it's in the the southern end of Florida. It's west of Fort Lauderdale, west of Miami, Um, just comfortably in the southern end of Florida. I cannot figure out how somebody who was young and healthy had successfully hiked for months, although... It does feel unwise to not have some sort of identification with you. That feels like an oddly, um, do you know what I mean? There's an argument to be made that he, the fact that he never told anybody his name would lead me to believe that was a choice. Uh-huh. Uh, it does seem strange to me that somebody who worked in programming or like in, in big tech was able to scrub his identity you would think his identity existed in the life before he started doing this that would you'd be able to connect him to. Yeah. And he had a lot of money on him. Yes. The he kind was, of money. I don't know the typical, like, wh- wh- what kind of crowd you get on the Appalachian Trail. I'm sure there are a lot of divorced men uh, having their midlife crisis. You know, or anything, yeah, like, yeah. a young guy doesn't seem troubled, uh, s- seems to be doing the hike comfortably, has money. Um, somebody in one of these articles comments on how he had nice teeth. Like he clearly is not a, a hobo or, you know, like he's decided in New York he wanted to go to Florida and did it well enough. Only Do to we die know there. for sure that he started in New York or is he that was, just what he told everybody? It might have been where he, what he told people. I'm trying to think of the first time people saw him. North of Virginia, at least. Yeah. You know, you have to, you do have to be careful with the narrative you accept from somebody versus the truth of it. So there is a chance if the first time anybody ever saw him was north of Virginia, that doesn't mean he started in New York. It's true. Doesn't it just fascinate you that somebody, you know, 
it sounded like there was no visible, like there was no blunt force trauma to the head or self-inflicted wounds. So then it is really puzzling to me how he goes from how that woman saw him in those photos to like possibly just starving. Just wasted away. What, what is that? I am going to take my boots off and then I'm going to lay in here and not give myself nourishment. Yeah. Or and it's a pretty big a- gap. Six months is a big enough gap that things could go wrong somewhere in six months that would leave you in a place <laughs> like that. But I, I mean, it seems like if he got through. He put a, up a, a lot tent. Of, uh, yeah. Like he was able to go to a campsite, set up a tent, take his boots off and then. You don't waste away suddenly overnight, so like... Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that you did a really it's, uh, good story. We haven't had a lot of laughs this episode, so I cannot recommend uh, enough that... Uh, we'll post a picture of the police composite <laughs> sketch <laughs> they made of him. Somebody made the choice to give him the expression of like seeing the sunrise for the first time. <laughs> That's the... <Or> a double <laughs> rainbow. <laughs> we'll uh, catch you later. We're going to go get tacos. Thanks for listening. Which is the one that has street cred, the brand? Which one is the one I'm supposed to make fun of? Of the brothers?